you can make a few million dollars, $10 million being really good at marketing and sales. You could become a multimillionaire doing that. It's just, you're not gonna build like the massive, massive fortune unless the thing you sell is good. That's Alex Hermosi, best-selling author and the founder of acquisition.com. The real big obvious answer of why people don't make more money is they're just not that good. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Alex Hermosi to discuss why ego is the enemy of progress, how desirable traits are actually learnable skills, and the power of humility in achieving success. And so if you want to be smarter, the key is to change your behavior faster. And so I think in that way, it operationalizes knowledge. Probably a lot of lawyers are big readers and they love, you know, the mental masturbation of like consuming stuff. But if your behavior does not change after you go to a workshop or a seminar, or you listen to this podcast, if your behavior doesn't change, you learned nothing, which means you are not that smart. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Alex Hermosi is a game changer in the world of business. As the founder and managing partner of Acquisition.com, he's helped countless entrepreneurs achieve success through his innovative approach to marketing and sales. In a world where ego often reigns supreme, Alex is a refreshing voice of reason, urging his fellow entrepreneurs to confront reality and embrace the truth about what it takes to win. I began our conversation by asking Alex about his journey towards building his personal brand and how it has impacted his success. The only platform that I was really consistent on was, uh, not even consistent on, the only one I used was uh, podcasts. So my first podcast was June of 17. And then I think in September of 20, I did my first YouTube videos. And then I did that first. And then I think uh, probably one or two quarters later, we started with the short video stuff on TikTok and Instagram Reels. I picked up Twitter, I think in like June of like the next year of 21. And then that's been more or less the the entire strategy. When I say strategy, I mean like we just post on those platforms. <laughs> so. So from my understanding, you kind of had an evolution of just your mindset towards building brand and building personal brand. What led to that? Being wrong. So I had like my eighth episode of my podcast in 17 was uh, Stop Branding. That was the eighth episode. I probably have the exact opposite perspective now and I'm wealthier now. So hopefully I'm right. And maybe, maybe in 10 years, I'll change my mind again, but I don't think I will. But I mean, I guess fundamentally, brand is one of the ways that you can differentiate anything right? It's really just the goodwill that you have in the audience and your ability to price above a commoditized version of whatever you offer 
like that discrepancy between what a commodity sells at and what yours sells at, like that is the pricing power that brand affords you. And so with price being the single strongest lever on profits in any kind of business, having a brand becomes incredibly important if it is the strongest influencer on your ability to price. And so that just fundamentally shifted how I saw it. Because before then it was just direct response in terms of cold reach outs, like cold calls, cold emails, et cetera, and direct response ads in order to get customers. And so I was just a big advocate of like, just do cold calls and run ads and you will get customers. But the long, long play is building a brand that is worth something. And then that can get transferred into any arena. So like if I were to start a Mosey Nation credit card, or I were to start Mosey Nation apparel, both of them would be successful, even though they're completely independent um, because of the brand that's been built. Not that I'm going to do either of those things, but I'm just saying like, that's kind of the idea. Well, and I mean, so obviously your ventures have evolved over the years. I, I heard you mention on a podcast that the businesses that most entrepreneurs start are often drastically different from the ones that they eventually find themselves in. And you mentioned like Andy Frisella and, and yourself. Uh, if you could briefly share just, just kind of your entrepreneurial journey and your evolution. Yeah, I'll do it by businesses. So that'll probably be easier. So first thing I did was I started an online training charity business. So people would pay, but then I would donate the money. And that was just kind of like get my feet wet with people giving me money, even though I didn't take it personally. Then I quit my job and asked the same people who were paying the charity if they would pay me instead so that I could like eat. I was like, I'm the charity now. And they were all good with it. From there, I started my first gym. From that gym, opened up uh, five more. From there, I had a mentor say that, you know, he was like, you're really good at running gyms. You shouldn't be owning more gyms. You should uh, kind of teach other people how to run gyms. And so uh, from there, we did uh, turnarounds for two years. So we'd fly out to brick and mortar gyms, kind of put all of our systems in place and turn it around in 30 days. That was kind of the, the offer. And then from there, that became really logistically painful. You know, you've got eight sales guys going out to eight different locations across the nation every single month on the road, 21 to 24 days a month, just tough for families, et cetera. And so um, by a stroke of luck, there's a million very sad stories in between here, but I was supposed to launch six or eight gyms the next month. And we had decided to pivot to go direct to consumer selling weight loss because we were, we were familiar with that. And I told the gym owners that we were supposed to launch that I wasn't going to do it. And one of the guys was like, hey, could you just show me what you're doing rather than flying out here? And I was like, sure, how much? And I just picked a really high number and he said yes. And I was like, holy cow, that was pretty cool. And so then I told all the other guys the same thing and they were like, how much? And I just kept increasing the number and they all said it was fine. And then I called all the gyms I did the turnarounds for and said, remember that thing I did? Can I just license the model to you? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. And so um, that's when we got into licensing. That was 2017. Uh, that was like May, April, May of 2017. And then it took off like a rocket. And so then, uh, you know, 5,000 locations later, <laughs> That's where Jim launches today. We started a supplement company in between there to sell through that distribution base. So that was e-commerce. And then we started Allen, which is a software company that worked leads for brick and mortar businesses. That was the next year after that, all selling through that same audience. And then in 2021, in December, we sold two of those companies. So Jim Launch and Prestige Labs to American Pacific Group, which is a private equity group out of San Francisco. And we sold that for 46.2. And then we sold the software company for an undisclosed amount to strategic buyer. So we sold 75% of that uh, in an all stock deal. And so uh, from there, we started our family office, which is acquisition.com, which we started the day after we sold. And uh, now we have, I think, 11 portfolio companies. It's fascinating to me because, I mean, I mean, looking back at, at that journey, I know you mentioned that there's several moments. And I mean, I've heard you describe some of them, some like the rock bottom moments of the people that did not operate with integrity, the people that you would partner with, uh, you know, they're running out of money, even, even the way you start $100 million offers your book, just talking about that scenario. I mean, if you could speak to some of that, just, just <laughs> I think some of, some of that is absent, you know, in the, in the story of, uh, of adversity, right? 
That was an unrelatable uh, recanting of events. I mean, there were many rock bottom moments, but the, you know, the, I would say the two most famous of them, if stories can become famous, was when we switched out of the brick and mortar gyms and got into the turnaround business. The reason I, I made that move was because I was supposed to be opening more and more locations with a new partner. So I sold five and I opened a sixth with this kind of new model that was going to be like a launch and go model. And so the guy that I partnered with was like, hey, I'm really good at operating. You should, instead of doing these turnarounds, just open it, fill it, and then I'll just come behind you. And then every month you can open up one to two locations and own them all. And I was like, that sounds great. He said, you know, but I have some financial issues and uh, my credit's not good. So of course you personally guarantee the lease and front all the money. And I was like, of course, and I'll do the work too, of course. I mean, that's any nice guy would do that. And so, you know, Everyone already knows where this goes. Six weeks later, you know, I crushed the launch of this new gym. And then I look at the bank account, bank account's empty. And I put all the money from selling my gyms into that bank account too, because I was young and I didn't understand how this worked. And so all the money that I'd had from the five years or four years of building my own gyms was gone. And so I just had this gym and I was like, dude, what the hell? And uh, he said, I know you've been skimming from the top of this business. And so that was just my share. It hadn't, it never occurred to anything like that had ever occurred to me. And so I went to a mentor and he's like, just go line by line with him through the financials. Like maybe he's concerned or whatever. And so anyways, I went to him with all the financials highlighted line by line just to show what every one of the expenses was. And then we brushed it off the table before we could even look at it. I was like, oh, okay. I just got completely scammed here. And so that was the first time I lost everything. And then, uh, that was when my chubby wife at the time took me to her parents' house, which I got to meet her parents for the first time. Hey, here's this guy from the internet that I just left everything for. He's a real winner. He has nothing to his name and uh, we're going to start the business together. And so, uh, she said, Hey, we should keep doing this turnarounds, even though that this one didn't work out, the model's good. And so she got all of her friends to quit their jobs to do this with us. And so we were supposed to start on the 26th of December, which was 2016. And, uh, on the 24th of December, I had done this big launch to kind of recoup money because that was how I knew how to make money. So I did a big launch and we had like $100,000 that was supposed to come to us. And then uh, for whatever reason, the money wasn't coming. Like we were processing the credit cards and it just wasn't getting deposited. And it had been almost like three weeks. And I was like, what's going on? So Christmas Eve, I get on the phone with the payment processor and I was like, I'm not getting off the phone until you guys send me the money. And uh, long story short, they said, hey, because of that gym that you opened up, you know, because I shut the gym down that was with that guy and I was doing launches in other locations. So I was running everything through a, Southern California brick and mortar processor account, which I didn't know how this works. I just figured, like, yeah, you just process money through the, the POS. And so I was making up memberships that didn't exist for gyms that I wasn't at. And they were like, this is a regular, we're just going to hold on to this money for six months. And that was all of the money that I needed. And two days later, all of her friends were supposed to quit their job and start this new launch business with me. And so that was going to cost me $3,300 a day in advertising, hotels, airfare, rental cars, per diems for food for this new launch and go model. I had a credit card from when I had my gyms that still hadn't been canceled by MX for a hundred thousand dollar limit on it. That's when I told Layla, I was like, Hey, I think this could go really, really terribly wrong. And I think you would be justified in leaving me at this time. I'm like sitting in her parents' basement or you know, <laughs> like, I'm like, you really should leave me right now. I don't think this is going well for me. And she said, I would sleep with you under bridge if it came to that. And so, you know, when she said that to me, it gave me whatever confidence every guy could use. And I spent $3,300 a day on a credit card that and meanwhile, I still didn't have a way to process money. So we're spending 3000 plus a day selling 20 to 60, you know, packages of fitness per day with all these sales guys. And I couldn't process the money. And so on the last day of the month, I finally got some processor to give me a $50,000 limit. If you're doing the math here, 3300 a day does not add up to 50 K. But the good news was I could process 50 K a month, which meant that on the last day of January, I processed 50 on the first day of February, I processed 50. I got two more running. And so the 50 and 50 covered my $100,000 from the month before. 
And then I was still back at zero again. And so the next month that I made like 20 or $30,000 in profit after costs. And so that kind of concluded the first rock bottom. And then fast forward three months, all these gyms that we're doing these launches for started telling the customers to refund and go through them instead at half the price after we would leave the location because they had the relationship with them. But we owned the processing risk, which ended up being a recurring thing. Anyways, they told them to refund. So I lost everything again, the little nut that I had saved up. And uh, that was when I called the gym owners to say, hey, we're going to sell direct to consumer. I think maybe I was telling Layla, I was like, I think maybe I'm, I'm out on this gym thing. Like something's not working and I just need to switch gears. But when I called the first guy up and I said, I'm not doing it, he said, I put my life savings into this gym man, and I refinanced my house and I maxed out all my cards. Like I need your help. And so push came to shove and I said, fine, I'll show you how I fill gyms up and how my whole system works. I was like, but I'm not flying out there to save your ass if you can't sell. And he said, no, it's fine. And so he said, well, how much? And I said, $6,000, which at the time was the most money I could possibly imagine someone paying me. And he said, yes, in like five seconds. And I was like, holy shit. And I just, I was dumbfounded. And so then I just grabbed a piece of cardboard. I was like, oh yeah, what card do you want to use? And then I you know wrote it down and processed $6,000 in one transaction and had seven more calls that day and ended up doing $60,000 in a single day. Layla came back in from doing weight loss sales because I was going to be the new business. And I was like, hey, I think we're still in the gym business. I think we were just doing it wrong. She's like, wait, so we're back in gyms? It's like, yeah, we're back in gyms. And so from there, I called all the old gyms that we'd done the launches for, said, hey, remember that thing I just ripped $100,000 out of your location for? Want me to show you how I did it? And they said, sure. And then I sold them the thing. So that's the slightly longer story of uh, that with with many, many sadnesses uh, taken out of that. <laughs> During that period of time, I also got a head-on collision in the DUI. My mother was in the hospital. Like there was a lot of other things that were going on too, but it was uh, it was a tough time for me. It's like the ultimate pitch for entrepreneurship, you know, just, just now. And I mean, I, I gotta yeah, say, right. Yeah. The ultimate pitch for entrepreneurship, like beware. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's like, well, so the frustrations lead to breakthroughs. And it, it, it seems like, I mean, every, every entrepreneur kind of has their own story, but it's, it's very rare if, if ever that I hear anybody having a story where everything always went up and, you know, and to the right, it was always it was screwed over. There was always some rock bottom moment. There was something that was a catalyst when you're taking these hits. Obviously, you're human as well. I mean, it's it's easy to get discouraged. What keeps you going? I mean, for me at the time, it was very away driven. A lot of times, people are very driven by like their mission or their purpose or their big vision, and I had none of those things. I mean, my vision was a: don't be broke; b: don't let my dad be right; really, b: more than a. But a was the facilitator of b. <laughs> and so, yeah, just the idea of going back as a failure to Baltimore was just like I would rather have died than done that. And so. As much pain as I was going through at the time, it was better than the alternative of admitting defeat. And so for me, that was the thing that got me through it. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, there's a lot of positive jargon that's put out by, you know, it's social media and influencers, et cetera, like follow your passion. But the thing is, is like when you're starting out, everything sucks. Like everything sucks. And I was talking to a friend of mine, sadness comes from not knowing what to do, right? It's a feeling of hopelessness. Like you don't know what steps to take, which really just means it comes from, from ignorance. And when you're new, you don't know anything. So of course you're, of course you don't know what to do, which leads to like very deep depression for a lot of entrepreneurs at different times in their careers. And so most guys who are starting out are thinking there's something wrong with them because they're not passionate. But my probably singular message is use pain because most entrepreneurs don't need to look very far to find the pain in their lives. Anger, shame, fear, resentment, whatever it is, anxiety. Like we have different things that have fueled us in our lives. And I would rather have people just use what they have, because I think that is in essence, what entrepreneurship is about is being resourceful, not really necessarily about having resources. And if we consider passion a resource as a requirement to be successful, I just don't think it's true. I think you need fuel and you should use whatever fuel you have. I think over time, if you get your head above water, you'll be able to find a different fuel. But I think that away from fuel is more powerful than towards fuel. 
it's not necessarily sustainable. But in the beginning, you just need to move. And so a lot of ways that can get you to move. Yeah. How much do you believe in luck? plays a role in success or does it play a role in success? I mean, for example, you meeting Layla, right? It's hard to tell the story of Alex without also the story of Layla, but you know, at the same time, if you'd never met, I guess you'd eventually get there, but with the path of probably pretty different. I think luck is huge. I think there are things you can do to increase the surface area of luck. I think luck is a massive factor. I mean, I was born in America. I was born as a male, I was born to a doctor. So I mean, like from that perspective, I already won. Do I think if I was born in Bangladesh as a girl, that I would have been as successful as I am now? probably less likely. A big part of who I am now is the upbringing I had. If I live someone else's life, I might be exactly the same way they are. And so in that way, I think it's very much luck driven. I wonder like when, when Layla stood by you and, uh, you know, she said you sleep under a bridge. I have a similar relationship because my wife, you know, I, I've joked, we kind of have like a Southpaw story. When she met me, I'm a penny stock. I'm just starting the company. She's successful. She knows what she's doing. Then we've kind of grown the business together. And I've asked her a few times, like, Hey, well, you know, what did you see in me then? But I'm curious, why do you think she stuck by you? I think Layla is an exceptional judge of people. I think if there's like one skill that Layla is world-class at, she just sees through people. Layla has never been wrong about a hire, about a partnership, ever. It's pretty impressive. And so I'm giving her words here, but I mean, she saw potential in me and she felt like if I had, if I was able to shed some of these bad partnerships and beliefs and relationships and things like that, that were weighing me down, that there was something underneath that was good. You know, a lot of ways that was kind of how both of us, I think, saw our relationship at the time was like, we're not good yet, but I think that we could be good together. And I mean, our relationship in the first two, three years was not like a, a Hollywood movie. You know what I mean? Like we were mostly business partners and we got married 11 months in, but we didn't have a wedding. We didn't have a party. We didn't have a honeymoon. We worked the day of our eloping and then we worked the next day. You know what I mean? It just, nothing happened and we just worked straight through. But I think it was about three years in where we started to like really recognize one another and really find our groove kind of even romantically. So we have definitely like an atypical story from that perspective, but it has worked out. Yeah. And I heard you mention on a podcast, just the importance of respect within a relationship, sometimes respect being even more important than affection. I mean, it's good to have both, but just to be able to respect one another. If you look at, um, gosh, I, I wish I could quote this better, but there's like the four horsemen of like divorce. Sure. For this like Hallmark study, they like have couples bring up some subject that they argue about. And they study how they argued and they could predict with like a 91% success rate who was going to be divorced in 10 years. And there's four horsemen of divorce. And the one that was the highest predictor was contempt, which can seen, be seen visually with an eye roll, which is both a lack of respect for the other person and also thinking you're better than them. And so that like combination is deadly for relationships. And I think that if you were to reverse that and think that like the other person is better than you are and have ultimate respect for them, then you might have something that could safeguard a marriage or a relationship. You know, I know the, the two of you worked together. I, I joke, my wife and I, I say like, you know, we've been together, but it's, it's like dog years, right? Because, you know, we, you know, we wake up together, we go to the office and then we come home. So it's just like multiplied by seven. But like, what advice do you have for other couples, whether they're considering working together, if they're already working together, how to keep that going? I have to put my disclaimer that like, we've only been together seven years and I think in decades. So when we cross our first decade, I'll let everyone know. But, you know, the only encouraging thing I can say is that from a time spent together, the average marriage, people spend two hours a day together and 45 minutes of that is high quality. And the other hour and 15 minutes is watching television or eating and doing like household activities. And so the amount of time we've spent together compared to the average relationship is we've had like a 45 or 50 year marriage comparatively in terms of hours spent. That being said, with that large caveat, I think that the biggest thing that has worked for us is just acceptance, which is that Layla has never tried to change me and I've never really tried to change her. 
And I think I get a lot of messages, which is like, how do I find my Layla? Or more specifically, how do I make my wife into Layla? Which is a weird message to get because it means that you don't accept your partner who they are. And so people are like, how do I get my wife into business? I was like, if she's not already into business, she's not into business. You're not going to make her into business. It should be like a woman saying like, how can I make my man taller? It's just not going to happen. So I think, and this is going to probably be relatively controversial, but I think a lot of people lose in the draft. So a lot of people think about like, how do you coach a championship team? I think a lot of teams lose in the draft. They don't have the talent. And so again, that's probably a little bit contrarian to like all marriages are savable, which maybe they are. The question is, are they ideal or are they optimal for both partners in terms of achieving their potential? Because I think a lot of people mature over time and probably wouldn't make the same decisions as they did, you know, 20 years ago, which is one of the hardest parts about a lifelong decision in general. And so I think that making sure that you're picking somebody who has the same long-term goal as you, has the same values as you. And I think the, the single greatest one is that if you want to grow, that they want to grow. Because growth is also another word for change, which means that if you have two people who are changing for a long period of time, you just better hope they'd be changing in the same direction. Yeah. Obviously a choice of spouse or life partner or whatever, I, you know, obviously probably one of the most important decisions we make in our lives. Now it's number one. So, okay. So on that note, then what would you say is like two and three? I say that from uh, measuring from subjective well-being. So it has a 0.71 correlation to your subjective well-being as the strength of your relationship with your significant other. So there's nothing else that comes close to that. So I would say from that perspective, it is a, it is the, the most important one. And pretty much, if you think about this, everything else is impermanent. The business you start is impermanent. You can change businesses, you can change markets, you can change where you live, you can change who you work with. Like all of these things are changeable. But if you are married and you believe in trying to stay with that commitment, then like you're making a permanent either detractor or addition to your life. And that person's going to interact with you probably more than anyone else. Not probably. You will be interacting with that person probably more than anyone else, especially if you work together. And so like pick wisely. Yeah. But two and three, where you live, like the actual market that you're in, that's becoming less and less important. But I think just the, the circles you run in are important. I think from a business perspective, the industries that you choose to get into have a huge influence on you. You know, if you're getting into steel mills that are going out or you're getting into newspapers 10 years ago, it probably wasn't the best call. So it doesn't matter how good you were, you probably weren't going to win. So those are kind of like some of the bigger or macro influencers on how successful you'll be. But that's a little bit more of a business tangent. And I know you, you've worked with many, many different founders. I mean, in, in all sorts of different businesses, services-based businesses, software, I mean, the, the full gamut. Like, are there any particular traits that you've seen in the, in the most successful founders that kind of separate the most successful from the least successful? Yeah, they're humble. If you have humility, you can do a lot. Because if somebody's humble, then they can accept feedback. If they can accept feedback, then they can change. Basically, if someone doesn't have humility, then it means that whoever they are day one has to be the person that they need to be at day 1000. Because if they can't admit a deficit, then they can't improve. And so humility is by far the biggest one. Beyond that, it's they have to have drive. They have to have some reason that they're going to do it, whether it's away from fuel or towards fuel, like they have to have some sort of drive. There's a big study on this that I've been quoted a lot for, even though it's not my study. <laughs> it's, you know, the three most common traits that they've seen, you know, it's not the early wake up time. It's not the healthy eating. It's not the cold plunges or the affirmations, but the, the three common traits were that they had a superiority complex. So they believe that they can do big things. They want to chase after big goals. The second is that they have crippling insecurity and that they feel it never be enough and that they have impulse control. And so if you have a big goal and you have big fuel and you don't stray the path and you do it for a very long period of time, you'll probably win. Yeah. It's almost like, I think there's a book, it's called like the manic edge to a degree. It, it, it's like, you almost have to be 
crazy in a sense. I mean, you, you think about entrepreneur and the idea of starting a business, the risk that you take on. I mean, obviously, I, mean, I think Shark Tank maybe has popularized this to an extent, but when you look at the reality of it, it's not always a great proposition. I think now with a lot of like social media culture, it's this idea of working remotely from your laptop. Everybody's making 40 grand a month. I don't know why, why people get stuck on this number, but it just, I don't know that it really depicts an accurate portrayal of, of what this journey is. I think the average small business owner takes home like $50,000 a year. I mean, the average small business owner makes the same as the median household income. So from that sense, it's one person versus a household. So I guess in that sense, they have to make a little bit more money. They also take on significantly more risk personally in order to do that. So I, I agree with you. I think that the, I think right now it's in vogue. It's cool. I mean, it is the way to make the most money. It's also the way to lose the most money. So <laughs> at definition, the, the, the highest risk, highest reward game, but you know, to quote Warren Buffett, I think the reason business is so risky is because people don't know what they're doing. And that's kind of the nature of it is that when you start, you're ignorant. Biggest debt you pay is the tax of not knowing, right? You're not knowing what you do. He also says that it's it's only risky if you don't know what you're doing. And so once you do know what you're doing, then there's not nearly as much risk in business. But the only way to know what you're doing is to get in the game, which means you have to incur lots of risk to get in. And then the more you play, the better you get and the less risky it is and the higher reward is. Yeah. It's like in, in many cases, it's like the, uh, the solutions, making good decisions. How do you make good decisions, experience? How do you gain ex experience? Bad decisions. Yeah, and, right. you know, and the cycle repeats. You know, Hopefully something you said, people's bad decisions to throw that yeah, in. Which is ultimately the goal, right? Which is where right. the, the, certainly the, uh, the, the humility comes in. Something you shared before that I, I thought was very interesting is just the differences between how the most successful people view time and their approach to the time horizon. If you could elaborate on that. You can pretty easily tell how successful an entrepreneur is by looking at two elements of time. One is the increments of time they speak in. So if they talk in decades, they talk in multiple decades, they talk in lifetimes, they talk in generations, I can almost guarantee you it's gonna be significantly more successful entrepreneur than the one who talks about next week, next month, and even next quarter. And it's such a small thing, but it's it's pervasive. Like you can hear it in conversation, you can immediately know, oh, this guy's only doing this much. Because the only way to do really big things is to think on a much longer time horizon. The second component is how they manage the micro, which is if you look at someone's calendar and how they allocate their most scarce resource, which is time, you can see where they're going to be in six or 12 months. So if you look at the calendar as the balance sheet of someone's time asset and how they allocate it, their time budget, then you will see where they're going to get their returns. And so if we look at a founder and we look at their calendar, we can tell how the company's going. We can usually see how we need to fix it because fundamentally most entrepreneurs work all the hours of the day. Most of them do, right? And so if they're not making the amount of money that they want to make, it's because they're doing the wrong stuff. And that's usually the biggest issue. And they think they need to work harder, but they've already maxed out their hours, which means fundamentally they're wrong. They're seeing a distorted reality. They think this is going to work and it is not. Are there particular things that, that you see? I mean, just even, even looking like at an entrepreneur's calendar where you're like, okay, well that, you can tell right away, okay, this is not optimized or the focus isn't in the right place. Like what, what types of things stick out? Well, the single common trait that every entrepreneur has to get over over time is relinquishing control. So entrepreneurship is a continual giving up of control at all levels. And so whatever they're doing is usually the thing that they need to be able to give up and transfer to somebody else in order to get further and further above the business and get more leverage. And so in the beginning, you have to give up delivery or you have to give up selling or you have to give up promoting. You have to give up something or administrative tasks. And you look at your calendar and you say, which of these things is most easy to replace in the marketplace and is the cheapest one that I can replace. And you replace the first one that gives you the most time for the least amount of money. And then you're like, great, now I should fill my time up with the thing that makes me more money. And fundamentally that is the game is you just continue to trade up the time until 
you have bought all of your time back and then you can just do all the highest level leverage activities and leverage just being defined as getting more for what you put in. Bill, this is a concept that I think when people hear it, they, they probably will nod along. And yet you and I both know this. I think so many entrepreneurs struggle with it and struggle with that relinquishment of control. No one can do it as well as they can. No one can do it quite the way they do. What's the answer there? Like, how, how do you get somebody to the point where they actually start doing it? Confrontation. This is why you're poor. You can keep doing what you're doing. It's just, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And so the question is whether you want to keep getting what you're getting or you're willing to change something. I mean, it's the same as somebody trying to lose weight saying, I want to keep eating the same diet, but if I look the same, you're like, yeah. So you have a diet of time that you continue to eat or let something else eat your time every single day. And you expect the outcome to look different. And it's just not true. And so I think just a very logical breakdown where you have to confront it. You have to confront reality. And a lot of entrepreneurs are delusional. Sometimes in a good way, you know, you have to be optimistically delusional in a certain capacity to be an entrepreneur. But a lot of times that delusion takes control and they believe the false statements that you just said, right? Which is like, no one can do it like I can do it. I'm irreplaceable, et cetera, et cetera. But like every single human on planet earth is replaced in a hundred years. And the likelihood is that if you were doing it and you're also doing other things, then somebody doing full-time what you're doing will be better than you are. And I can virtually guarantee that a hundred people doing full-time what you're doing are going to be better than you are. A lot of entrepreneurs learn the wrong lessons from experiences. So we talked about having experiences earlier, right? And you make the lesson, et cetera. But the thing is, is that most people are on the wrong lessons. So I'll give you an example. A small business owner hires the first salesperson. They're like, I'm going to give up control of sales. I'm going to give it to this person. They're going to start selling. And of course the person takes, okay. Because they also don't know how to hire, manage, recruit, train salespeople because they don't have that skill set yet either. But they bring this person on, the person fails, right? There's lots of lessons you can get from that. But one lesson that's common is that salespeople don't work, right? Or no salesperson can sell like I can, right? And so then as soon as they have that belief, forever until that belief has changed, they will not make more money. And the thing is, is there's a lot of those salesman beliefs at every single level of entrepreneurship. But the correct lesson is phrasing the thing that didn't work as deficiency personally, which is, okay, this salesman didn't work. I do not know how to, and then insert the problem, recruit, hire, train, manage a salesperson. Great. That's solvable. Let's go solve that. And then that is the process all the way up. But you have to admit it. It's like AA, right? You got to admit you have a problem. And until they do, and that's where the humility comes in, in, into play, that's what plateaus. Many entrepreneurs, they cannot admit that anyone else could do better than them. And most people would do better than you. And I think it's a much better belief. But like everyone could do everything better than me. It's great. I'm not needed. And that's the point. You want to own the business, not have the business own you. It's interesting. It's like so many entrepreneurs I meet, I, you know, I don't know if this direct correlation exists, but it seems like the more successful they are, I mean, when you really start getting up there, eight figures, nine figures, 10 figures beyond, it's like you start to see greater levels of humility. And I wonder if to an extent, and this doesn't apply to everyone, but it's always striking to me how someone can still have ego if they have built a business from nothing. And just, just the humbling process of even building an organization, the lessons you have to learn, the challenge that you experience, the pain in many cases to come out of that with ego, but yet the ones that know all the answers, have it all figured out. No, I'm good. I already read that book. I already, you know, I already heard that. Like they're the ones that seem to be struggling the most. I agree. I also think that you can have situational ego because there are definitely some very wealthy people who are very successful who do have egos who are self-made. Like I, I can attest to that. There are. There are also many, many, many who are very humble in general, but I think it's also domain specific. You can be humble, humble in business and, and arrogant with women. You can be arrogant with your physique, but humble. You know what I mean? So I think it's a little bit more nuanced overall. That being said, there's totally people who are arrogant in everything they do. But I do think that it's more domain specific. And even within the business, somebody might have an ego around how good they are at marketing, but not an ego around how good they are at HR, right? And so it really comes down to how do they associate their self-worth with something? However close the action 
is to the association they have with their identity and their worth, the harder it is to peel away from their grip. Like a lot of entrepreneurs who are promotional or product-driven entrepreneurs don't have any problem outsourcing finance. Like it's not like they don't have a huge thing with that, right? But they have a huge problem if someone wants to take over product or take over promotion or whatever for the business. And so it's because they just derive their self-worth from that. And so that's, that's why a lot of the entrepreneurship is a head game. I'm curious, I mean, now with acquisition.com, and by the way, I've, I've just at the time when you were launching that company and starting it, how much was the domain, by the way? Like, was this, was this like a big, big investment just to get the domain or was it just it was an 370,000. Okay. Okay. Obviously at this point it's been worth it, but what, what was your vision for acquisition.com? I wanted it to be the family office for Layla and I to invest our capital into businesses that we believed in with founders that we thought were awesome and products that we believe were going to help people. And so that's more or less what we've done. And the whole idea was, I wonder if we can build a personal brand where people would listen to our content and say, hey, I want to work with these guys. And so what happens is the, the goal was that it would create a somewhat of a pre-filtering process for values. Because if you can get values alignment, it's kind of like the marriage thing. Like if we have similar mission, similar values, it's a lot easier to get along. That was a theory. I didn't know if it was going to work, but it, it it certainly has. We get a lot of companies every day that that reach out to us that you know are looking for investors to either buy a minority or a majority stake in the company to help them scale, which is very much what we do. So we are we are active. That's I mean that's where we make our money is actively growing the companies themselves and recruiting in great people to help scale the businesses. It seems like this is kind of like a forever venture for you, and in, in many ways, I mean obviously you, you love building businesses, but this gives you. Uh, a way to scratch that itch in, in so many different industries and verticals and yes so the best businesses have a compounding vehicle built into them and most businesses don't which is why most businesses are not the best businesses right and so you can have a compounding vehicle in terms of capital as in like there's an allocation of capital that exists within the business like every time we open up a new facility we get 50% on our money. And so the question is, how many times can we open up new facilities? Like that would be an example. If we have customers, let's say if it's a national thing rather than brick and mortar locations, if every time a customer comes to us, they bring another 1.3 customers, then we know that over time, no matter how big we get, as long as we retain the quality of our, of our deliverable, we will get more and more people who will continue to come to us. The other way to do that would be you have people who always keep selling for you. Let's say you sell solar, right? It's transactional. People aren't really going to get a second roof. But if you as the business owner know that every salesperson brings you two roofs a month, then your compounding is on the actual salespeople themselves. And so you go from having two people who get you two roofs a month to eight people to, and every, every month you keep bringing them on and then they become a consistent production, but the number of salespeople compounds. And so those are the only ways to build forever businesses. And those are the types of businesses that we're interested in is in 30 years, will this thing be massive? And if that's true, then all we have to do is wait. And it seems that you're especially passionate about great products, products that do a great job to almost, they do the marketing for you and, and then ultimately scaling through customers, customers referring other customers. It's easier. I mean, so it's selfish. It's the lazy man's way of doing it. It's long-term lazy. It's short-term effort, but it's long-term lazy because think about it this way. I could spend two years perfecting a book, right? And making it amazing and really putting, pouring my heart and soul to it. And then after that two years, release it. And then for the rest of time, have people who buy the book tell other people about the book. And so I spent two years, but then from that point going forward, customers market everything for me. And everything that comes in off of the book is profit, right? The flip side is that I spend two months writing a book that's decent, but not great. And then I have to spend the rest of my life promoting it. And then in so doing, I also get lots of people to find out that I have a mediocre book. It just makes less sense. 
But the thing is, is it just takes so much more time to front load that effort to make an exceptional product or service that most people aren't willing to do it. And so most people's products, like the real big obvious answer of why people don't make more money is they're just not that good. And specifically from an ego perspective, they're just not as good as they think they are. And is there a balance or how do you know when something is ready? Potentially, if you're trying to make something perfect that you can run into procrastination, I'm seeing this right now. I'm working on a second book. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anyone would read the first book. It turns out a few people read the first book. So now I'm trying to make the second one even better because now I'm like, okay, people are going to read this thing. I know you're working on, on your next book as well. At what point do you know, okay, this, this is ready? Oh, when for me, there was nothing left to do. Yeah. Like anything else that I would add or subtract to it would make it worse. Now that's not always the case. Like a book is a very defined, literally has bookends, right? There's beginning ends in it. But if you have a software product, for example, I share those more from a conceptual perspective as an ideal, but like the idea is to have a consistent cadence where you're improving the product on an ongoing basis. But the thing is just front loading that because until you have the product market fit, until you have a certain percentage of people who are, who are bringing their own friends to try your thing, it's still not right. And so what ends up happening is that, especially if you have a promotion-driven entrepreneur, so somebody really understands how to market and sell, this is where, I don't want to say it gets dangerous. It's just that you can make a few million dollars, $10 million being really good at marketing and sales. And so you could become a multimillionaire doing that. It's just, you're not going to build like the massive, massive fortune unless the thing you sell is good. And so what happens is most entrepreneurs who are promotional promote too soon. And then they have to fight this uphill battle for the rest of their existence. And, they, and the thing is, is it gets reinforced because they get better and better at marketing. And so they market more and more and more and more. But it's at some point, especially if it's like D2C, so like, you know, directing consumer work products, you go into colder and colder audiences who are less and less likely to buy your thing. And so your cost to acquire continues to rise over time because also advertising costs only go one way, which is up just the cost per eyeball. And so you've got multiple forces that are going against you that are decreasing your profitability. And unless you have a concurrent force or something that's going in parallel with that growth, which is your customers bring you other customers to decrease that cost of acquisition, you eventually hit a plateau where you can do lots of revenue and not a lot of profit and you can't grow from there. And that's where sometimes you have to have hard conversations with the entrepreneur and be like, this thing just isn't good enough. And we need to maybe dial back a little bit. And so like the original idea of getting your first acquisition channel going, whatever it is, is not to then scale that. The idea is that you get enough customers in that you can get feedback, continue to improve the product. And then once you get enough people referring and bringing friends, which is my litmus test, for it is good enough, then you scale it. Now, you still consistently want to make it better and better and better. Absolutely. But a litmus test is, am I getting referrals? Once you have that, then all of your marketing efforts from there on out are going to be enhanced. And then that's what's going to allow you to outcompete your competition who wasn't so long-sighted and always just wanted to make the next buck. Yeah. Speaking of competition, how do you view competition? I remember you mentioned the story of the, of the gentleman that kind of screwed you over early on, although at this point, you know, I almost feel sorry for them, right? Because if they kind of hung in, things have probably gone much better for them just, just seeing your rise. But it seemed like you never were vengeful about it. You always just had to move forward. And I imagine just in your different businesses, you've had your dealings with various competitors. Some say, you know, the, the steeper the climb, the sharper the knives. What's your thought on competition? It seemed like there's two separate things there. One is like the ex-partner, like holding grudges, and the other is competition in general. So, you know, one, I, I love this quote. I think the first time I heard it was from Rick Warren as a pastor. He said, anger is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And so it's just like, it doesn't serve you. So many times, I think many of us have had these experiences where you just obsess about being angry at someone and how could they, how dare they. And most of anger comes from ego. Go back to the humility thing, which is like, you fundamentally think you deserve better, Right. If you don't think you deserve anything, then a lot of times it can diffuse a lot of the situations because you're like, well, in 500 million years, this probably won't matter. And if you scale out wide enough, the earth doesn't look like anything but a speck of dust or even you can't even see it. 
And so it just gives a little bit of perspective on like how much does this really matter. From a competition perspective, there's an obsession with small business owners around competition. And I would say that most small business owners look at other small business owners and see them as competition, but like they are not competition. Usually both people just have shitty products, which is why they have small businesses. And so I would say obsess over your customers, not your competition. The competition takes care of itself. And as an aside, it's interesting because again, this is kind of a, a more of a small business owner perspective, but like the private equity and the, and the investment world, if they see three companies that serve a similar avatar, they just buy all three and combine them. And so like, as much as you might have a blood feud with this person, like the person who's a level up from you just sees it as three different cultures that serve the same avatar with slight differences. And then they merge them into a much bigger company that obviously doesn't always go that way. There's cultural differences, blah, 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 et cetera. But I think just seeing it like that, I've seen so many competitors who like wanted to kill each other. And even, even in the, in the gym launch world, there was a guy who he considered himself to be a competitor of ours. And I reached out to him and he thought that, uh, I had some like ill intent and like now we're, we're decent friends. And he's like, I always hated you. And I was like, yeah, I didn't think about you. It's these one way, you know, like obsessing over things that are happening only in the entrepreneur's mind. And I think that that is the biggest cost of competition is the obsession over what everyone else is doing rather than taking that same obsession and applying it to your customers. And that would make you more money. Yeah. I've heard you say, like, I know a lot of this is a mental game. People thinking about, well, what's someone going to think of me? What are they going to think of my decisions, my choices? If I do this, if I go left, if I go right. And I think you said something along the lines of, you know, one day you're going to pass, it's going to be your funeral. And then the, there's going to be people who don't make it just because something came up that day. There may be people who want to eat, people who are arguing over who gets what. Most of the people that you met your entire life aren't going to make it. I made this tweet and it went really viral, but you know, the queen of England died, I think like eight or nine months ago now, you know, she amassed more wealth than 99.99% of the population. She was a monarch for 70 years, which has to be a close to a record. She did it as a female, which is even more amazing from the times that she came in to power and whatnot. And whoever's listening to this probably hasn't thought about the queen of England. And she was, you know, one of the all time goats of just like success. If you want to define it that way, we're so self-centered that we assume that everyone's going to cry when we die, but most of us won't even be remembered for six months. And so I think we have all this irrational fear around taking bigger swings, doing the things that we want to do, making whatever dreams we have real, or at least giving it a shot. We play these, these videotapes in our minds of these future scenarios where people who aren't thinking about us are saying things that they're not even thinking because they don't care about you and they think about themselves. And so it's like, no one's thinking about you. Getting over yourself is a really good way to be able to have more personal freedom in the choices we make and take on big risks. Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit. Just, I want to get your take on, uh, on AI. I know, I know you've, you've posted a bit about this. I want to get your perspective now. I think when you posted one time, it was about chat GPT-3 and now we're GPT-4. Maybe, you know, we'll, we'll be on to the next one soon enough. I mean, if a lot of people listening to this podcast, they're running a law firm, professional service-based business. Like, how do you think it'll impact those types of businesses? It will. It will impact those businesses. I'll just say my two cents, which is the people who will win. I mean, this isn't even my quote, but like, you're not going to get replaced by AI, you'll get replaced by somebody who knows how to use your AI better than you. And that's like the, the short to medium term. I mean, AI is scary, man. I think it's a big black box. I think humans are exceptionally bad at predicting outcomes. I mean, even if you had asked two years ago, which jobs AI is going to take first, people would have said blue collar would have been, you know, drivers, laborers, et cetera. And it actually went all the way to top to the most creative jobs. It went to, you know, video and images and design and text. And so I think we're really bad at predicting what's going to happen. From a risk-adjusted basis, you know, the investment feels not worth it. And I know that that's really contrarian, but I'll, th I'll say it this way. is like AI has the possibility to really amazingly improve humanity. And we know that technology does not change our subjective well-being one bit. So we were just as happy and unhappy as we were. If anything, we're a little bit less happy with more technology. And on the downside risk is all humans are gone. And so 
the upside is we're just about as happy as we are now. And the downside is we're all not here. And so for me, if I were just to look at it from a risk adjusted basis, I probably wouldn't make that bet. That being said, the cat is out of the bag and now we have to play the cards we're dealt. And so I think for everybody who is listening, it would behoove you to spend your weekends learning how to prompt engineer, staying up to date with the new plugins and overlays and auto GPT and AVAGI and all these things that are coming out. Because if you aren't, your competitors are. And the thing is, the scale and speed of these is so robust that it will be able to compress progress that used to take years into weeks. And so if someone has a little bit of an edge, it might be a lot of an edge really quick. So don't sleep on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's the rate of improvement that's, and almost like the unchecked rate of improvement, that's either the, the most exciting or in, in some cases, the scariest aspect of it. And yet, like you said, I mean, the cat's out of the bag at this point, it's, you know, it's here and just learn and leverage it. What about any other skills that you, you believe like just are valuable for people to develop? I think having the mindset that character traits that are desirable are not actually traits, they're skills. Because if you were to say like somebody who is honest or someone who is persistent or someone who is loyal, you're like, well, what does that mean? What means is somebody who acts in this way and under these circumstances. And so if you can act in this way under these circumstances, then it means you can expose yourself to these circumstances to act a certain way. And that means you can learn it. And so traits are learnable. You're not born with them. You learn them. You reinforce them over time. And then you become different. I use quotes here because you behave differently. And so I think I'll leave with this. Intelligence is a rate of learning. It's a speed. How quickly do you learn? And then you have to define learning. Learning is same condition, new behavior. So if I say, hey, when I show you this red thing, I'm going to slap you. And I show it and then I slap somebody and then I show it and then I slap them. And on the third time I show it to them and they duck right? Same condition, new behavior. They've learned. Somebody who's smarter, I show it once. And on the second time I go to slap them and they duck. So they have more intelligence. And so if you want to be smarter, the key is to change your behavior faster. And so I think in that way, it operationalizes knowledge. Probably a lot of lawyers are big readers and they love, you know, the mental masturbation of like consuming stuff. But if your behavior does not change, after you go to a workshop or a seminar, or you listen to this podcast, if your behavior doesn't change, you learned nothing, which means you are not that smart. I love it. Alex, I got to ask you, man, what's the day in the life like right now for you? I mean, I, I read you don't have any hobbies. You don't golf. <laughs> what are you up to? Just business stuff for the most part. I mean, today I was talking to a buddy of mine who works with public CEOs and I was bouncing some ideas off of him in terms of like our investment thesis and kind of our portfolio strategy. And then I had a meeting, a portfolio auto. So it's just like looking at some of the companies that we have and some of the issues that are coming up and kind of how we're going to resolve them and allocate resources around those. And a meeting with my book manager for the next book launch that's coming out, just making sure that our order quantities are right and that we have the right mix, you know, between paperback, hardback. Is the shipping guy ready in terms of like what's expected volumes? From there, I have this podcast. And so it's a mixed bag for me. For me, mostly my mornings are uh, working on one big thing for a very long period of time. So the book was my first six hours every day for the last two years. That's done now. So uh, now it's just getting into the kind of the promotional cycle for that book and making sure it gets printed and shipped and all that kind of stuff. Once that book launches, I'll probably be allocating all of my first six hours of the day to some other very big project. But that's what I'm really, I, I work on very few things for a long time. And it seems at this point, like it, your, your motivations perhaps have changed. I don't know if you're running away from anything at, at this point. I don't know if you're trying to prove anybody wrong. Like what keeps the fire burning? What keeps you excited? What keeps you energized? I mean, it's, it seems like it's not the money. Yeah. You already have that. So what keeps you going? I just like it. It's what I 
look forward to doing. I write books about business. I draw pictures about business. I make videos about business. I do business all day. I enjoy it. It's what I enjoy doing. And I just happen to be fortunate in the thing that I like happens to be valuable to a marketplace that exchanges money. If I liked gardening, I would be, I would have a super duper garden. I know, I don't know if I'd make as much money, but I, would. <laughs> but that, that's pretty much it. I'll leave with this. I had a mentor really early on in my life and I had a really good weekend, right? And I just, everything was like perfect that weekend. I was telling her how, how my weekend had been. And she was like, I'm pretty sure the key to life is stringing as many of those days in a row as you can. And it just kind of stuck with me because it operationalized improving subjective well-being, which is like, if I do the things that I like with the people that I like as many days in a row as I can, I'll probably end up okay. And that's pretty much what I've tried to live by. And as we come to a close, we ask everybody this, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? That you would introduce new variables that would force the rules to change. I want to give a huge thank you to Alex Hermosi for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Alex Hermosi, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.